Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 and if you want to run with the Game Changers, oh, I promise you, you're in the right place. Our buzz today, I'm going to quote Benjamin Franklin, early to bed and early to rise makes a man, and shall we add, and a woman, or anybody else, healthy, wealthy, and wise. So there, we're talking about health, of course. Let's get started. The key to a healthy population is much more than your, mine, anybody we know, any individual's personal decisions and behaviors. As a matter of fact, genetic science, I know you've all heard about it, read about it, maybe didn't give much thought to it, but genetic science now says the fault may be in our stars. After all, hmm, predispositioned, already determined in the cards? Let's see. So when we look at wellness programs, let's ask a couple of questions here. Can population-based wellness programs be equitable, be fair when our genes are our cultures, and our environments can make good health, getting it, keeping it, enjoying it. For some people, it's a stroll in the park. Just go out and walk. Your weight is good. Your breathing is fine. Your blood pressure is perfect. Your attitude is great. Life is good. But for other people, it's an uphill climb all the time, a slog, if you will. So let's look at that, and let's look at big data. We haven't talked about that in a while. Is big data the new big brother or big sister? Well, all I can say is watch out, listen up, take notes. We have three experts on the panel today who are going to help us unravel it. Our topic officially is the behavior side of preventive medicine, genetic science, and big data. We've covered similar topics twice, so this is part three. I want to do a shout-out to Susan R. at SAP, who is listening on the line and loves to report on this. This is one of her her favorite topics, so Susan, glad you are listening to us. So let's start out with, let me just tell you who our three panelists are, and then we'll get started. First up, we're going to be welcoming Michael Manisha, specialist leader with Deloitte Consulting, and a shout-out to all our good friends at Deloitte. And my Mike's last name, if you're listening, is spelled, if you want to look him up, M-A-N-I-C-C-I-A. Joining him today is also a returning panelist, Dr. Paul Tana, T-U-N-N-A-H, who founded Pharma Forum Media in 2009. Rounding out the panel, we have a newcomer today. She is Petra Streng, S-T-R-E-N-G, Solution Manager in SAP's Industry Business Unit for Life Sciences, and she focuses on R&D and regulatory topics. So now you know who our players are. So let me get started with the quote sent to us by Mike Manisha. Mike has dabbled into the world of songs and films with his quote. Everybody remember way back when, uh, let's see, 1969 was a good year because that was the first time a rock song won the Grammy Award for Record of the Year. What am I talking about? Oh, come on. You all know Mrs. Robinson from the 1967 film The Graduate, and it was written by Paul Simon. Interestingly enough, Mike Nichols, the director who was filming The Graduate, was fascinated with Simon and Garfunkel. I don't know if uh, Mike knows this, but Mike Nichols was listening to Simon and Garfunkel's music nonstop before and after the film. It was an actual obsession. So he went to Columbia Records chairman Clive Davis and asked for permission to license Simon and Garfunkel's music for the film. I won't give you the rest. It's history. You can look it up. Here's the quote from the song, Mrs. Robinson. Here we go. We'd like to know a little bit about you for our files. We'd like to help you learn 
to help yourself. Look around you. All you see are sympathetic eyes. Mike Manisha, welcome back. How are you? Fine, Bonnie. Thank you. I love the quote. I, I don't think I've paid attention to the words of that song. Did you know that Mike Nichols went after Simon and Garfunkel very purposefully to get them to write music for his movie? Did you know that? Uh, I did, as a matter of fact. Um, I've been a, a Paul Simon fan, I think uh, I can say, all my life. I was uh, nine years old when this song came out, and uh, I just saw him this month at the Hollywood Bowl, so that covers... Half a century. All I can say is, wow, <laughs> we have a real aficionado here. I, he, I, in a way, they were an obsession back in the day. I remember their album cover, and Paul Simon has certainly survived in the music business for so many years, still going strong. So tell me, how come you picked this quote? It happens to sound like it's perfect for our topic, but I'm going to let you interpret it for us. What does this have to do with the behavior side of preventive medicine, Mike? Well, that's, I, I, I was happy to, to, to use this because I think in 50 years of people deconstructing Paul Simon's lyrics, I'm the first to find messages about workplace wellness and population health. Um, <laughs> but I like it because the, the service meeting, you know, just so clearly relates. We'd like to know a little bit about you for our files. We need data. Please complete your health risk assessment and biometric screening. Um, we'd like to help you learn to help yourself. We'll give you feedback and tools to live a more healthful life. Um, look around you. All you see are sympathetic eyes. We're on your side. We're here to help. And so that's, that's the surface messaging of wellness. But um, with Paul Simon's lyrics, of course, the, 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 the beauty is never on the surface. It's, it's a little deeper, and I think the analogy here is true. A little bit more about uh, the song and the movie will, will help to, to illustrate. So... Um, Paul Simon wrote this song for the graduate, but he didn't complete it in time. So all they had was the, um, uh, the chorus. And so the rest of the song came later. And I've always seen it as sort of a sequel to the movie. In the movie, if you know, Mrs. Robinson is a middle-aged woman, seduces her uh, friend's son, uh, a recent college graduate who later falls for his daughter. It's very humorous, very pathetic. Um, <laughs> very real. <laughs> very real, yes. Um, and so I, I've always thought that really what's happening in this song is, is, is the sequel. Mrs. Robinson is, has now found herself in a, in a sanitarium or rehab facility for the well-heeled. And she's being handled. She's sort of a compromised, off-balance, unpredictable subject. Um, and I think this manipulation or the perception of it is sometimes the, the subtext to the service messaging of what's happening with wellness. You know, are we looking at individuals with, with health risks as people to engage and partner with, or are we looking at them as a, as a population that needs to be fixed and corrected? Very interesting. You may be the only one who ever did find that applicability of those lyrics to a topic like this. What do you think Mrs. Robinson would say if she were a real person about being uh, her her situation, her scenario being quoted on an internet-based radio show talking about preventive medicine? You think she'd say, "Yeah, bring it on," or you think she'd ask you for a date, Mike? <laughs> I, I, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm too old for Mrs. Robinson, so I think she'd just go for the scotch. <laughs> 
Oh, touche. Talking about personal choices in health. Yes, drink up. Thank you, Mike. Very, very nice to have you back. And thanks for starting the show with a big smile and a little bit of rock and roll history there. Very appreciated. <clears throat> I think I need that scotch right now. Dr. Paul Tunna is up next. Paul founded Pharmaforum Media in 2009, as I said. And Paul has brought us a quote from Warren Buffett. I don't think anybody doesn't know who Warren is, but in case you're wondering, he's 85 years old, and in August, the last day of, next to the last day of August this year, he will be 86 years old. He's an American business magnate, investor, and philanthropist, and he is considered, according to Wikipedia, as of this morning, Warren Buffett is considered the most successful investor in the world. I said that slowly for a reason. Buffett is the chairman, CEO, and largest shareholder of Berkshire Hathaway, and is consistently ranked among the world's wealthiest people. He was the wealthiest person in 2008 and the third wealthiest in 2015. And in 2012, Time Magazine named him one of the world's most influential people. I will stop there. Here is the quote that Paul has selected from the great lore of words of wisdom of Warren Buffett. Quote, risk comes not knowing what comes from not knowing what you're doing. Let's leave it at that. Paul Tunna, welcome back. How have you been? I've been good, and thanks for having me back. It's great to be, uh, be on the show again. We are delighted. Great topic today. We keep finding ways to segue and segue and segue on our preventive medicine and behavior topic. So very, very glad to have you back. Talk to me about Warren Buffett. He certainly has had some health issues of his own. Uh, he did successfully recover and survive a prostate cancer in 2012. So he knows a little bit about health and choices. But tell me why you picked this quote today, Paul. Well, I picked this quote because I think there's some real parallels between economics and healthcare, and I'll come on to that in a moment. But, um, you know, as you know, and you can tell from the accent, I'm based over here in the UK, so this quote somehow seems even more topical now than it was two or three weeks ago when I selected it, because uh, everybody is talking about risk and Brexit, and everyone's talking about, do we know what we're doing? Um, so definitely very topical. But I, you know, I guess the link with healthcare for me is that we talk about big data and we look at the volume of data that is available in the financial sector, an enormous quantity of data. And actually, it's still very, very hard to predict what markets are going to do. And people like Warren Buffett, who've made a lot of money by being able to do that, are quite a rare breed. So it's not about absolutes. It's about being able to shift the odds in your favor and I think that's very, very true with healthcare data as well. I think even in 20 or 30 years' time, we won't be able to absolutely predict and say, this is going to happen, you need to do that. But you can shift those odds in your favor. Paul, do you think people want to shift those odds by and large, or is it still seen as, ah, I got to do that, I have to drink that, I have to walk more, I have to start eating more broccoli, I got to have the green drink in the morning, what the heck, I'm 60 or I'm 40, the die is cast, now I'm dipping a little bit into the genetic predisposition side, if you will. What do you think people's reaction is to this news that we, we do have choices in our health? What do you think? I think it's very varied, and, and your point is completely valid, that actually it's not all about minimizing your risk as much as possible. And again, you look at the way that people like Warren Buffett invest, that's not what they're doing. They're trying to do some things which are risky, some which are less risky, but mm -hmm. overall get the blend. And in the same way, as we live our lives, you, know, you can't completely, I don't think you can completely live your life around minimizing risk of illness and all those kind of things. You've got to have some fun. You've got to enjoy yourself. But you have to be informed around what those risks are. You have to make those choices. 
really good example of this was a study done many years ago, um, takes it back to my scientific roots, where they looked at lab rats and found you could make rats live typically one and a half times as long if you had them on a starvation diet the whole time. So very low metabolism, not producing toxins, not getting things like cancer and so on. But who wants to live on a starvation diet the whole time? You've got to balance being healthy with mental health, having a good life. But to me, it all comes back to about being informed. And I think the younger generation that are coming through face a future where they will not be able to escape this data. They'll not be able to escape being informed. Very interesting. And we will get into this further when you talk about not being able to escape the data. And I talked a little bit about uh, is big data now the new big brother or big sister for us regarding health and all kinds of other things. So we will dip our toe in that pool later on. Paul Tana, thank you so much and welcome back. And now let's introduce our newcomer to the panel. She is Petra Streng, Solution Manager in SAP's Industry Business Unit for Life Sciences. That's what's important and why she's on the show. And a shout out to her colleague and mine, Joe Miles at SAP for nominating Petra for this panel. So here's the quote. Petra has sent me a quote from Dr. Gabor Mate, M-A-T-E, and you put that wonderful little French accent ago over the E. Uh, Gabor Mate was born in January 1944. He is a Hungarian-born Canadian physician who specializes in the study and treatment of addiction and is also widely recognized for his perspective on ADD, that's Attention Deficit Disorder, and his firmly held belief in the connection between mind and body. He has written four books exploring ADD, stress, developmental psychology and addiction and he's a regular columnist for the Vancouver Sun and the Globe and Mail. One more thing, a recurring theme in Dr. Gabor's books is the impact of our childhood on our mental and physical health through neurological and psychological mechanisms which he connects with the need for social change and that goes back a little to what I just discussed with Dr. Paul Tana. Here is the quote Petra has selected. In the real world, there is no nature versus nurture argument, only an infinitely complex and moment-by-moment interaction between genetic and environmental effects. Wow, what a quote. Petra Strang, welcome to the show. How are you, Petra? Good morning, Bonnie. Thank you very much for including me in your panel in today's radio show. Our pleasure. So talk to me. I've never heard of Dr. Gabor Mate. I was fascinated with what I found when I looked him up on Wikipedia. So tell me, are you a follower, a fan, and how does this quote relate to our topic today? I know it's very relevant. I have uh, worked a couple times in psychiatry units, so of course their name is very well known. And uh, I like uh, Dr. Gabor Mate's uh, statement simply because it shows us or rather reminds us how complex the matter of health is and that uh, with our knowledge we're just scratching the surface and we need a lot more information to really understand the mechanism of certain diseases and to then truly identify what can lead to a more um, healthy lifestyle and uh, what is uh, impacted by certain genetic makeups that we're simply born with. Petra, do you think we have a lot of choice in this? I noticed this very strong emphasis on genetic and environmental. Uh, how does Dr. Matei interpret that? Is it a 50-50? Is it where you're born and what you do and who your parents are and what kind of food they fed you versus that's the environment versus uh, genetic, what's in the gene pool that goes back generations in your family? What's his perspective or what's your thought on this? How much control do we really have? 
There's another quote saying, um, who loads uh, the gun and who presses the, um, the barrel then to make the gun shoot. So, yes, it's a, it, it's, in some instances it might be um, 50-50, but it really depends on the disease. It depends on the, um, on the environment. Uh, so you, his quote I find so important because he says, you cannot always predict it um, because the, the matters are so interwoven that to separate it out and just, you know, pin a single number to it is not going to work. Therefore, taking those things where we already know they have a positive influence on our health, um, enforcing and the supporting positive behavior is, um, is key just to bring the overall health of uh, a population up. But it's also accepting that certain things um, are not as influential or um, not e as easily to influence as we might uh, wish for and to still provide a healthcare environment that supports also people with not such a positive outlook in, in life and still make healthcare affordable to them as well. Thank you very much, Petra. Great insights. And again, thank you for introducing me to the work of Dr. Matei. And speaking of health, ha-ha, now we're going to circle back to Mike Manisha. And we're going to ask Mike, where are you calling from? What time is it? And what's in your cup today? And there's no shame in saying you're drinking something that's delicious and has a lot of sugar in it, if that's what you love, Mike. So I'm going to leave it up to you. We're not judging you. What are you drinking today? Or what are you planning to drink after the show? Uh, well, uh, I, I will cop to the sugar, and, and actually, I, so I'm calling from Los Angeles. It's um, a little after 8 in the morning, and so, so my answer is, is sort of part two of our, our discussion last time. I, last time I mentioned that at this hour I'm, I'm always drinking tea, and it's always, you know, seemed a little bit uh, strange here because most people are coffee drinkers where, where I am, and, you know, coffee I, I was mentioning that coffee seems to connote, you know, American energy and, and tea kind of connotes British leisure. And so Paul came in and gave me two tests. He, he asked, does it have milk and am I using a saucer? And so the milk was an, an easy no. And then uh, Paul described how actually milk sort of uh, counters the, the positive health effects naturally found in tea. So I, I felt pretty good about that. But I kept thinking about the saucer. Because as soon as he said it, I, I couldn't get it out of my mind. And um, uh, I started hearing, you know, the click, as you said, a, a cup down in, into the saucer. And, and then I, it also hit me. I could not picture a cup and a saucer on a cluttered desk. It sort of mm. implied order and thoughtfulness and, and uh, you know, contemplation. So... So I got the cups and saucers out of the cupboard where they, you know, usually sit waiting for Christmas dinner and, and uh, set it on my desk and, and I've been using it and I, I won't claim it's made me more productive, but I, I feel better about it. Wow, I never thought about that. The clutter, I was thinking neatness, I was thinking mindfulness, uh, and I was thinking that do people have who drink from a mug on their cluttered desk, is their lifestyle any different or their health any different from those who make the time and the space and the care for the proper teacup on the saucer? Do you think there are vast implications here, Mike? You think? Um, I'm, I'm hoping because I'm, 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 I need everything <laughs> I can get, but my, my mug is usually sitting on a stack of, Papers and three books, so uh, <laughs> go with the saucer for now. 
I love it. I love it. We're getting to the very personal side of what are you drinking. And I only took a guess when I said, don't be embarrassed to say you're having sugar and you just went right for it. So I had no idea. I just want you to know I'm not peeking. Okay. It's just a, just a, just a shoot in the wind to say, okay, you know, talk to me. Dr. Paul Tana, now that you've introduced Mike to the proper way of drinking tea, and I didn't know tea was a sign of British leisure. I thought it was formality and structure. So Paul, educate me. What are you drinking? Where are you calling from? What's the time and and what's your philosophy on the leisureness of tea well, well i'm calling from uh, west byfleet where the office is little place just west of london it's um just coming up to 20 past four over here later in the day and um first of all i love the sort of infiltration of british culture into mike's routine particularly as we're approaching a little event around fourth of july which um is slightly more popular over there than it is over here <laughs> no kidding um, so i think we need to keep more of that going um, I'll also pretend that my desk is super ordered in the sure and certain knowledge that none of you can actually see it, so I'll, I'll keep that pretense going. Um, but in terms of what I'm drinking, I think I need something a little bit stronger at the moment because I hinted earlier we've got quite a bit of stuff going on in the UK at the moment. The world seems to be watching with interest what's happening with our country. So maybe this evening I'll indulge in a, in a glass of wine and... Um, what I'm going to try is, is quite a rare thing. I'm going to try a nice glass of English wine from a place called Camel Valley down in Cornwall. And this is for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because I've got a lovely two-week holiday or vacation, as you call it, coming up. I'll be down in Cornwall for two weeks. But also because with all these events going on, I think maybe I need to acclimatize to, uh, to British wine because I'm just not sure for how much longer we'll be able to get French, German or Italian wine. So it's a bit of maybe getting used to what's, uh, what's to come in the future. Very well put. Yes, we have just uh, dabbled a little bit on that topic on shows for the past couple of days, but nobody's come out and made any statements about the will of the people and the validation of referendums and so much is going on around the world. But thank you for those little uh, timely reference notes. I appreciate it, Paul. And I'm so glad you've influenced the drinking habits of Mike Manisha. That's very important to our conversation as well. And now let's get to Petra Strang, who is in Germany somewhere. Petra, tell us where are you calling from? What's in your cup what time of day is it and what do you like to drink yes it's in southern germany close to heidelberg it's uh, 20 past five already here and uh, i'm a sparkling water aficionado however uh, there's a reason why i might have to shift over to still water which i don't really like but the reason is a very good one and it fits into today's uh, topic just uh, last week, a new commercial started on German television by a French um, water company. French folks only um, drink still water or mostly drink still water, so unfortunately they only offer it for, for still water. But they offer a price um, for um, people drinking um, their type of water for a one-year household help so that people can take the extra time to exercise and do sports. I mean, isn't this a great commercial? Isn't that really, you know, they've, they've really um, gotten the, the message of what do you have to do for, for your health and how do you have to enable yourself and your family to free up that time to really exercise. So get rid of the excuses and get some um, household help, take the extra time for your health. That's a great message and that might be the key to shift me over to still water. I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm thinking yesterday, Petra, 
on one of our shows, yes, there was a quote from Yoda from Star Wars. You know, the very wise and ageless Yoda. He always is going to look like that, that age. Probably pretty healthy, actually. The quote is, do or do not. There is no try. I think that's what you were saying to us about people exercising. There's no excuse. Just either do it or don't and make up your mind. Are we right on that, Petra? Absolutely. There you go. Who would have thought Yoda? We're, we're doing some movie references here. Guess what? I'm going to reference it's time for a break. I am drinking cool, clear water in a cool, clear mug with a yellow straw to welcome back the sunshine here in New York. It was a little rainy, pluey yesterday. We had threats of thunderstorms and all kinds of things reflecting the world order right now, but it didn't happen, thank goodness. However, all of you might be interested to know that at one twenty this morning, and I was awake and working, my phone rang. That means three extensions plus the link to the cell phone all went off at one twenty this morning. Of course, I expected a health crisis. Who wouldn't, right? Family. My mom's almost 100. All kinds of friends, people around the country. And it was a robocall telling me very respectfully in a male robot voice that I had been successfully removed from somebody's do not call list. It didn't tell me what the company was. It didn't tell me where they were calling from. It didn't tell me why. It was just a very polite, this is to tell you you are no longer on our call list. So that was what they wanted to tell me at one twenty in the morning. Any quick comments from the panel before we go to break? Mike, what do you think? I, I, I think that has to be the classic robocall, non-apology <laughs> apology uh, that I have ever heard. Yeah, I think so. I didn't get too excited. The blood pressure went up a little bit. Paul, any comments on that? <laughs> no, I, I think Mike's got his spot on there, to be honest. I think so. Petra, has that ever happened to you? Good thing I have a very healthy sleep, so I miss all of these calls. <laughs> and bad thing that I'm always working overnight to prepare for these radio shows. But enough about me. We're going to take a quick break. We're talking about the behavior side of preventive medicine, genetic science and big data. We have so much to talk about. Very smart panelists today, very insightful, and they're all very charming. Mike Manisha at Deloitte Consulting. And shout out to Carla Neal and all of our friends at Deloitte. Dr. Paul Tunna at Pharma Forum Media and Petra Strang at SA. And a shout out to Joe Miles again for sending us Petra as our expert on this side for the show. I'm Bonnie D. Graham and I plan to be after we come back. So don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. You know what to do. Just stick around. Justin out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP. SAP Systems for secure access to business processes anytime, anywhere, and on any device. www.sap.com When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. 
And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. Indeed, let's get back, and we are back, and our topic today is the behavior side of preventive medicine. That means you, every one of you in our global listening audience, your behavior, preventive medicine, what does one thing have to do with another? We're looking at genetic science and big data. Is it all in the stars? We're not so sure. You may have something to do with it. So Mike Manisha at Deloitte is going to start our roundtable, and Mike told me the following in his notes, which is going to start us off. He says, there is a natural tension in many efforts to improve population health. Programs are fundamentally about enabling individuals to have a better understanding of what drives their personal health, a better sense of the possibility of improving their health, and better ability to actually achieve those improvements. There's a lot of wishful thinking in here, Mike, so why don't you take us through this, please? Um, so I think this, this really ties very well to, you know, what Paul was just saying about, you know, the analogy of financial data and shifting the odds in your favor. So we couple on the, on the one hand, the idea of these, these wellness population health programs that if they're about lifestyle change, they become very sort of personal to your personal decisions about how you, you go about your, your life, more healthful eating, better sleep, don't get wakened up by robocalls in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. And so as, as program managers, now this starts to intersect with big data, which, which seems to, to drive everything. And so the, the, the first tension here is, is, is that large, the large amounts of data which are uh, used to predict uh, incredible things that you wouldn't expect. Your consumer data can, can be used very effectively to protect, predict, project the, the likelihood that you will uh, encounter or represent certain health risks and, and be healthier or less healthy. And so from the, the individual side, the recipient of these uh, uh, initiatives, you start to get this question of, you know, am I being enabled or am I being handled? Am I, am I Mrs. Robinson? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the, the, the place where these can, can negatively in, intersect is, is uh, people use data as, as predictors, and we're seeing this, in, you know, in hiring decisions and in, in health decisions to basically say, you know, your category is one that is likely to be unhealthful. Um, we, we would like to select against you. The positive way to use data is really more around the, the uh, uh, nudge techniques that have sort of been popularized in, in behavioral economics in, in recent years. And, and as Paul was saying, shifting the odds in your favor. So um, do we use information to say, this is how we will better inform that nudge. Who and when will we interact with people? Um, how hard will we nudge? In what direction will we nudge? So that the idea becomes not an impossible goal of optimal health for all, but mm-hmm. moving everyone incrementally to sort of the better version of themselves that can happen at this point point in time uh, is very much in line with with Petra's quote about this uh, constant interaction. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Thank you, Mike. Dr. Paul Tun, I'd love to hear your point of view on this. Good, good conversation topic. Paul, and then we'll get Petra in. 
Well, I, yeah, I agree with Mike around the two sides to this. And I think, you know, fundamentally, your health is determined by your genetics and it's determined by your lifestyle, you know, your exercise level, what you eat, all those kind of things. And we are pretty close now to being able to understand both of those in a real level of detail, real time with all the data tracking, you know, really, really close. But I think the challenge is that for a generation like myself, who's not grown up with that, there's a fear factor there. You know, there's an element of what we don't know can't hurt us. And I say that as, you know, I regard myself as an educated person, but have I got my DNA sequence? No, because you kind of worry, well, what's it going to throw up? I think there's that side of it. And also there's a side that does worry about discrimination, which I think, you know, Mike was touching on there. And it makes me think a little bit of, um, you may remember a film called Gattaca, which was in the late 90s with Ethan Hawke. And it was looking at this future where we genetically profiled everybody. And based on that genetic profile, certain people could not do certain things. So Ethan Hawke's character, for example, wanted to be an astronaut. And he couldn't do that because he had some genetic defects. So I think that's a big concern for people. And for me, that's a bit of a Pandora's box around there's definite opportunity to intervene in our health. But we have to navigate some of these challenges along the way. Thank you, Paul. While you were speaking, I looked it up just for you movie buffs out there who don't know this one. Uh, Ethan Hawke's character was Vincent Freeman. He always fantasized about traveling into outer space, but he's grounded because he has a status as a genetically inferior Invalid, that's I-N-V-A-L-I-D, not invalid as we say here. He decides to fight his fate by purchasing the genes of Jerome Morrow, played by Jude Law, a laboratory-engineered valid, V-A-L-I-D. He assumes Jerome's DNA identity and joins the Gattaca, G-A-T-T-A-C-A space program, where he falls in love, of course, with Irene Uma Thurman, an investigation into the death of a Gattaca officer, played by Gore Vidal, complicates Vincent's plans. The release date was October 24th, 1997, directed by Andrew Nichol. That's the one, right, Paul? That's, that's the one. And, of course, the title, for those who haven't clocked it, Gattaca, is made of the letters G-A-T-C, which are short form for the codes in our DNA, the four base ah. pairs. Very interesting. Thank you. I'm going to tweet that. Petra, didn't mean to derail this before we got to you, but I thought it was interesting since we've got a couple of movies on the table here for discussion. So, Petra, talk to us. Agree or disagree with what we're, uh, we've got talking about right now? Great movie. I absolutely have to watch that. Uh, I haven't heard about this beforehand. I fully agree with uh, Mike's statements, and I'm very glad this topic came up because uh, I'm a bit afraid that uh, with all the um, negative twists uh, these kind of uh, mobile health and e-health scenarios um, can have as being used as an instrument, instrument, a mechanism um, to force um, the insurance rates, the premiums to go up um, if you don't behave as someone else uh, tells you, that this will have such a negative touch in people's mind that uh, societies will um, refuse to go further in that direction, which I would find a tremendous uh, loss because these kind of programs can be very helpful if you select the the right um, areas, if you tailor these programs according to the respective needs. And if you show people um, what their their value is, so nobody will stick with these kind of programs if it's you know just a, um, a matter to avoid uh, punishment by the insurance companies. You need to have an immediate benefit um, out of it, and it can be very diverse. Whether it's well, what? people with a heart condition who, mm-hmm. who can have um, or who can be monitored and, and 
sleep more um, more safely and more comfortably because they know that uh, um, you know someone is basically watching over them um, while they sleep, even if they are at at home. If it's uh, for um, people who are um, at the onset of a depression to monitor um, their state simply by um, day-to-day things um, they do, how long they are on the phone, how they touch the phone, what they do on the social media um, parts. Um, whenever you're in a stage where it's very tough for you yourself to, to help you to have that lending uh, or that helping hand lent to you via such a program can be very beneficial. And those are the kind of programs I would like to see more widely used, um, more widely offered, that I believe will bring us forward, will in the end lower the overall healthcare cost when we apply these things smartly and not frighten people off. Very important. You said something very, very interesting, not frighten people off. Uh, who do you think gets frightened the most, Petra? The older, the younger, the people who are, have the doctor wagging his or her finger at them saying you must or, or else? Who do you think is getting frightened by some of this? And maybe then ignoring it. What's your thought? Yes, there are are different hurdles. Um, Of course, there is uh, um, the the group of elderly who are less savvy um, often in regards to the new technologies. And so Mm -hmm. for them, you have to lower the the entry point uh, into these technologies uh, by providing very um, easy to use, simplistic um, um, ways, don't make it so so complex. Then there are the ones, uh, let's say, between the 30s and the 50s or, or 60s who um, are knowledgeable enough about these technologies but have the concept that, well, maybe if I give them my data, they will use it against me. So for them, you need to tailor the the programs in such a way that they know the data is kept in a um, secure private environment. Only the folks who need to um, deal and see with see your health data have access to that. And uh, um, sometimes, you know, it's it's the the convenience um, aspect that we sometimes forget. It's not just the health aspect, but just the convenience of quickly checking in with with the doctor without having to sit in the waiting room um, for two hours and losing a half day of of work because of it. That's a real motivating factor, at least for me, where, where time is of an essence. And then you have the younger um, generation where I would say the, the entry hurdles are really low. They, they live and, and deal with this kind of technology every day. They simply because, you know, the, the health issues usually come when, they, when people are older, um, not so much when, when you have a young crowd. So in there, pick the right um, environment to offer them an incentive to think about their health even early on and uh, make it more of a, yeah, maybe like a gaming exercise or something Mm -hmm. that uh, they like to do and are not forced um, to do. Thank you. Gamification. I think we mentioned that on part two of the show. Thank you so much, Petra. I'm going to circle back to Mike. Mike, anything you want to do to wrap this up before I move on to some notes from Dr. Paul Tana? You know, I'm I'm absolutely stunned at how well sitting in Heidelberg, Petra can describe the exact sort of situation and discussion I have uh, here in the U.S. with employers about how to deliver these programs because she's just hit uh, uh, very much on on the challenge from an employer point of view. You you run into a lot of of situations where someone feels accountable for the budget and they want control. And so they, the, the 
feel the, the surest way to make sure that uh, a wellness program isn't sort of the touchy-feely, fluff, insubstantial effort is to attach, you know, significant sort of disincentives on it. So if you, exactly what you said, if you don't do this, this will cost you more. Um, and, and sometimes incentives are, are very effective. And then to tie it specifically to biometric outcomes. Um, if your weight and your blood pressure and your glucose, et cetera, are within the healthy range, you're good. If not, you're not. And there's a comfort in that sense of control. But I think the risk is, is also what she just described is that you, you raise this conflict between the recipient of the program and, and the one delivering it. And then as part of that, now, now you, you're not establishing a trust. And as we move forward and technology becomes more important and more enabled and more capable, are the individuals going to do the things uh, that will communicate their data to help them, you know, uh, uh, benefit from these newer technologies that can inform them, you know, when their, their health is, is, is trending in a, in a certain direction, it's time to make a, a correction. Um, you're only going to do that if that's a, a positive interaction, if you feel that, yes, this is my trusted health advisor who's going to help me rather than this is someone who's going to ding me if I get off the, the right track. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mike. Good wrap-up notes on that topic. I want to talk now with Dr. Paul Tana about some comments here. Paul, you sent me about predetermination. You look like a very optimistic person from the statement I'm about to read. And we can go to other statements, but I'd really like to just hear your thoughts. You say, while predetermination, we're talking about health here, maybe making a comeback, it's difficult to imagine situations where there is nothing we can do to reduce the risk of illness and even where there are no cures. And then you add science is making advances all the time. Paul, you want to juxtapose that too? How optimistic are you that there will always be someone, a fund, a scientist, a student, uh, a researcher, a summer intern who's saying, wow, I think I can crack that code and make these people healthier. How optimistic are you? I'm very optimistic. I, I think the phrase that time is a great healer is very aptly applied here. And I think it's you know, we tend to, with health, it's very easy to focus on the negatives. We, we tend to focus on, you know, some of the diseases that we still can't treat. There's still some very bad cancers out there where the prognosis is very poor. But I think if we look back, we can forget some of the really good advances that have been made over the last 20 or 30 years and partially have been made because of some of the data and the information that we have. So particularly things like, for example, breast cancer, where early diagnosis now this is a chronic manageable disease. This is not a death sentence of people. You know, understanding the genetic makeup of someone's specific cancer means we have some very, very effective treatment options. And I think there's still the challenge that, you know, when we look at what is available out there, we know there are still some areas where treatments are not available or treatments are very expensive. But all the innovation that's coming through, as in any other sector, all of that in 10 years' time will be broadly available to everybody and will have a very significant impact. So you know, there might not be things that can help now, but if you manage a disease, if you can prolong your life, you're getting to a point where actually we can, for most things, find something that will help. Thank you, Paul. I just wanted to get your, I wanted to hear that positive outlook. Now I want to get into another topic from you before we turn to Petra's topics. You say the Pandora's box of big health data, and I'm not sure if that is big data for health or big 
health big data or big data health or how you want to put that health big data has been opened up the pandora's that's me the pandora's box of big health data has been opened there is no going back talk to us and then we'll have petra chime in on this one I mean, this is a one-way journey, and we, we've touched on already some of the perhaps generational differences where I didn't grow mm-hmm. up with this kind of tracking and genetic testing. It's a bit alien to us, but we are progressing to a point where it is going to be second nature for children that are being born in the next five to ten years. Genetic testing is very cheap now. All these applications monitoring what's going on are very cheap. Now, the reason why I say it's a Pandora's box is we have to navigate our way through some of these problems around privacy around not discriminating against people, all these kind of factors. But people who've read up about Pandora's box will know that at the very bottom of that box is hope. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm being optimistic, but I think there's enormous hope there that those fears we have in my generation will gradually subside with younger generations and the focus will be more on the benefits of this data and how we can live healthier lives. Thank you. Petra, love to get your two cents or $10 or however much money you want to put on the table. What are your thoughts about what Paul just added, please? Yeah, I can only stress the importance of uh, making sure that the data privacy um, is respected because that is uh, you know, stopping a lot of people from being more enthusiastic about such kind of, of programs. Uh, Maybe more so here in Europe than in the U.S. and definitely more so um, in uh, my generation and above than to the younger generation. And maybe that depends on our history, especially here in Germany, where in Eastern Germany we have been you know, monitored and under surveillance by um, not a very friendly government in, in the past that uh, sniffed out all the secrets um, of, of people. So we are, of course, they are a bit hesitant of uh, what we allow others to know about us. Um, however, we also are just about to, to learn and to understand that uh, if you provide anonymized data for research, um, that can unlock um, by statistical methods, by looking at the broader um, data sets to understand what are the mechanisms behind the disease, especially um, in the cancer treatment uh, where only a, a very tiny portion of the medicine given or the treatments given to patients is even effective. So there we are in desperate need of uh, more data that can be analyzed and uh, incorporate genome data as well as uh, lifestyle data, as well as clinical trial data, um, EMR data, whatever is available to bring it all together and make, uh, make sense of it. So that's uh, really key that we, on the one hand, um, teach the, the populations in the different countries why it's so important uh, to share that kind of anonymized data, but on the other side, make sure that the personalized data where individuals can be identified is secured, um, is kept private, and the access point is only via um, the patient himself or via the trusted um, general practitioner or the physician um, with whom the patient interacts anyway. Petra, such an important topic. And by the way, anybody wondering about to do or not to do genetic testing, there are some very interesting websites out there. I'm looking at verywell.com, V-E-R-Y-W-E-L-L, which is what we're talking about on our show. There are questions like why, what types of genetic tests exist, why are there questions about the pros and cons of genetic testing, and a quick reference point, by 2003, the Human Genome Project was completed, and scientists were able to identify every gene 
gene in a human's body. Other scientists then began pairing them with the medical problems they cause. So that's what we're referencing. Thank you, Petra. Good, good topic. Privacy. Mike Manisha, why don't we move into that realm? Any comments from you, please? You know, um, actually, I think what I'd like to respond to is, is, is Paul's comment about the sort of looking at genetics in a productive way, because I think that is so true here. I mean, most often when we hear people talking about, you know, their, their genetic markers, it's always with a fear attached. You know, why do I want to find out I'm going to have Alzheimer's? And I think that sort of shift in mindset to whether it's genetics or whether, as we were talking about a bit ago, it's sort of the more ordinary, you know, health choices, um, the ability to sort of incrementally improve to, 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 uh, better your, your, your circumstances by, by steps is, is such an important thought that I, I think really, you know, hopefully informs how we start thinking about these and how we use this information going forward. Thank you very much. And, Paul, I'm going to circle back to you. Any thoughts on privacy? I thought it was a very interesting topic Petra brought up. Yeah, I think just one more point I'd add, which is we have to remember that it's, it's, privacy is a very personal subject. It's impossible to generalize. It depends on an individual's personal circumstances. So if you're fit and well, you probably worry about sharing your data. But a really good example of the other end of the spectrum, a young lady that I met in, in Paris recently, who I have to say was inspirational, a lady called Emily Kramer Golinkoff, who runs a campaign called Emily's Entourage in the U.S., um, mm-hmm. emilysentourage.org, and I'd, I'd encourage people to take a look. And she's a, a 30-year-old cystic fibrosis patient who's heading into advanced disease, obviously facing quite a, a difficult prognosis over the next five to ten years because there are no treatments out there for her. And she was mm-hmm. very keen to say that her view, and she stressed it was her view and not necessarily anybody else's, was that she didn't care about privacy with her data. If it helped accelerate the path to a treatment that helped or a cure, she would throw her data out there because the prime focus for her was finding something that could help. Very interesting. I'm on the website right now. Emily's, E-M-I-L-Y-S, Entourage, E-N-T-O-U-R-A-G-E dot org. All one word, obviously no apostrophe between Emily and the S. So Emily, Emily's Entourage. It actually looks like Emily sent Ourage. And that's just the way, that's just the way it comes out. Uh, so yes, so we're good. Thank you very much for that reference. Petra, any thoughts on, on what, uh, Paul just added about the privacy issue? Anything you want to add before I move on? Very well, you know what? We're ready for our predictions, but I'll pull one topic. Go ahead, Petra. He's absolutely right. Um, if you have a choice between um, dying or being very, very seriously ill and giving out your data in the hope that there are others um, out there with a similar disease and it helps uh, researchers and uh, physicians find a better cure and treatment for your disease, who would not give up um, his or her data? There you go. I, I think uh, some of the privacy issues may be people who have secrets they don't want anybody to know or people who are very high profile, sports, movie stars, uh, and other entertainers who have some things they simply don't want anybody to know which could impact good or bad, the fans' reactions. I'm just talking off the top here. Petra, we are out of time for discussion, but I do want to make one comment here. You you prepared such wonderful notes. I think you've covered a lot of your topics in the conversation with Paul and Mike, but here's an interesting thing I just want to bring up, not for discussion, but just get it out here. You say many external motivation factors for health, for individual behaviors, like money or coupons, are not allowed in most countries. One quick comment on that, Petra, real fast. 
Yeah, it's the healthcare um, system in many um, countries where, um, by law, you're not allowed to to offer such kind of programs. So it's uh, up to to us and the the folks in the healthcare system what kind of uh, extrinsic motivation beyond the immediate health benefit you can offer people to stay on such um, programs and participate in it. Thank you very much. And Petra, I'm going to say ladies first, which I don't usually do on this program, but since you're the last one to speak and we didn't get to a lot of your topics, which means we could have another part to this show, I'm just saying. Petra, I'm going to let you go first for the predictions round. So take a look into that crystal ball of healthcare and genetics and big data and tell me what do you see? We could look at the year 2020 or any time before or after. Petra, what's going to change about the behavior side of preventive medicine, genetic science, big data, anything, every Thing. I'm going to give you 60 seconds. Go ahead, Petra. I think it uh, it will continue in 2020. We it will be more normal for people to um, to use these kind of programs. So I think we're just at the starting point for such uh, um, scenarios. What I want to highlight is that we also need to take care, however, that it's not just an individual's responsibility, but also a um, responsibility of the society. It's a little bit like, you know, building a a bridge um, and you would put um, the railings on it as well to help uh, people navigate that bridge and not uh, uh, falling off. That's what we also need to put in in place. So not just the individual's um, um, effort, but um, also bringing healthcare to the, to the next level by leveraging genome information, leveraging um, big data and uh, selecting carefully those areas where these uh, mobile health scenarios make a lot of sense. Thank you, Petra. And don't go away. We're not quite done. Mike Manisha at Deloitte Consulting, you're up. Why don't you give me a one-minute prediction as well? So uh, let's go. Let's stick with the privacy topic. And I think the... The, our approach to privacy is going to change, and I think one of the things that's going to change it is uh, people are understandably reluctant to give up their data because the trust factor hasn't been established about how they're going to use it. But one of the things that, that could change that in a, in a strange way is that uh, I don't think people realize now how much their data is being used without their knowledge. Their consumer data is, is out there for, for use, the same thing that kind of pushes messaging to you about what movies you might like, uh, is, is available to be used in any number of applications. So we are inferring about your health from how often you eat fast food and so forth because we can follow the trail in your, in your digital data. So I think that's going to create a different sense of privacy uh, simply because it's already in a certain sense being violated. Interesting. Thank you very much. And Dr. Paul Tana, I saved a minute for you. Just one minute. Go ahead. Predictions, please. So I'll be super brief because I think Mike and Petra have covered some fantastic ground there. But I'd like to add that I think the way we talk about preventative medicine will change and we probably won't use that terminology over the next 10 years or so. You know, it's becoming more holistic about managing our wellness, about managing our health. And that is a blend of, of, yes, medicines at the right time, but it's also a blend of technology, diagnostics, data, support networks, all these kind of things. I think that will just be intrinsic to the next generation as to how they manage their health and manage that risk rather than treat disease or prevent themselves getting ill. Thank you very much. Great insights. I have a funny feeling we've got enough for a part four. Mike, Paul, Petra, would you like to come back? Because I will offer you a date for later in the summer, early fall. Are you interested in continuing this, Michael? 
definitely. Good. Paul? Always enjoy these discussions, so yes. Good. I'm glad. Petra, you want to come back and join the party? Happy to, of course. Wonderful. A really good discussion. I appreciate your engagement, the three of you, your preparation, uh, how you, uh, I say, played well in the sandbox, and I mean that in the most complimentary sense of the back and forth. That's what we're looking for, good conversations with smart people. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, very appreciative that we had such a lively conversation, so much good information. We raised a lot of issues, and we will cover them on part four, so keep your eye peeled for information on the business channel at Coffee Break with Game Changers, or if you're on our mailing list on our promos. Shout out to Justin and the Business Channel team. Justin has a brother who is very ill right now in a hospital in Las Vegas. And we send our prayers to Justin and his family. We hope your brother is doing well and we hope everything works out okay. This is the end of our Wednesday broadcast. Tomorrow I'll be back with another double header. Let's see. Thursday morning we will have a lively session live at 10 a.m. Eastern of Internet of Things with Game Changers. And then at 2 p.m. Eastern we'll be back with the next edition of Think Big, Work Small with Game Changers. Don't want to miss that double header. All here on the Business Channel. I am Bonnie D. Graham and here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Have a good one and thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.